Awesome, guys. Can we give the band some honor at all of our campuses this weekend just for leading us so well? Thank you, team. Really appreciate that. And I'm going to ask you to stay standing, if you will, at East and in the Valley and online. If you want to stand up, you can as well. But we do a thing here at King's Church. We like to stand to honor God's word at the very top of our messages. And sometimes we read it together tonight. I'm going to read it for you. And I want you, even just invite you if, you, if you feel like it today, to just close your eyes and just receive what it is that God wants to give you from this reading from the book of Job and chapter 38. Here it is, the word of God. It says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone? As the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy, who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst from the womb? And as I clothed it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness, for I locked it behind barred gates, limiting its shores. I said, this far and no farther will you come. Here your proud waves must stop. Have you ever commanded the morning to appear and caused the dawn to rise in the east? Have you made daylight spread to the ends of the earth to bring an end to the night's wickedness? As the light approaches, the earth takes shape like clay pressed beneath a seal. It is robed in brilliant colors, and the light disturbs the wicked and stops the arm that is raised in violence. We're talking about the power of God today. Will you pray with me for just a moment as we start church? Father, today we love you. God, we are so excited for what it is you want to do in our hearts and in our lives today. This is for you, Jesus, and we ask it in your incredible, amazing name. Amen. Amen. Before you go to sit down at East here at the Valley, look at someone and say, let's do this. Let's do this. And then you can find a seat. Nice and simple, right? Really excited that you're here today. Again, a huge shout out to our friends at Bayside right now who are watching this with us. We are so excited that you are here. Thank you so much for worshiping with us. Huge shout out to our Valley crowd this year as well. And if you're watching online, listen, I felt like as I was preparing this week that God gave me a special word just for our online crowd. And here it is, all right? Only sinners skip church when we have really nice weather, all right? That's the word of God. Just kidding. That's a joke, obviously. We love, we're just jealous that you're on vacation right now, but I don't care if you are listening to the sound of my voice right now. We're just so excited about what it is that God's going to do in our midst this weekend. It's going to be awesome. And we've been having some really nice weather in St. John for the past little bit. Now, if you're at uh, one of our campuses here in St. John, you're going to know if you're online in a different country than I am, sorry. But here in St. John, we've been having some awesome weather. And last weekend, I was uh, really excited to be able to go to the Buskers on the Bay Festival. I don't know if anybody, any of our campuses got to check that out last weekend. Just by coincidence, my wife and I had the privilege to ship our kids off to their grandparents. Anybody know what that's like? So it just worked out that we had all kinds of free time on our hands that we didn't know what to do with. So we get to check out Buskers on the Bay quite a bit. And if you don't know what that is, it's just a festival. There's a bunch of street theater performers. Busking just basically means you perform and then you pass the hat and people come and give you money, right? So there were people doing all sorts of different stuff. I mean, we saw a bro that was up there on like a 20-foot unicycle juggling swords. He had a girl throwing swords at him while he was up there. Crazy stuff, right? And there was a, a pirate romancer guy who was supposed to be a fire handler and a fire breather, but I don't know if anybody saw him, but I, I, I left him not being super impressed. It was more like holding a torch and doing a lot of like weird little dance moves like this. I, 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 I didn't really see the appeal, but there was, a, there was a team called the Zap Circus. I don't know if anybody saw them, but basically a husband and wife duo that were doing like Cirque du Soleil kind of stuff. She was doing like a handstand on his skull and twirling hula hoops around her ankles. So I thought today that I'd try that for you guys. Is that, is that cool? Like anybody here want to see me do 
do a handstand and twirl hula hoops. Yeah, you guys just want to see me get hurt. I know, I know how it is. I know how it is, Bayside. That you just want to. See. Isn't it? Isn't there something sick in us that we see things like that and we're like, something inside of us is like. I kind of want to see what happens if they get hurt, right? It's like a sick, twisted thing that happens. I don't know what it is. For me, at least, maybe I'm the only one. Maybe I'm the only twisted weirdo. But there's some of those kinds of acts. And, like, if you've ever been to a circus and seen acrobats or a strongman act or something like that, I don't know about you, but I appreciate them so much because it's something that I can't do, right? It's something that's outside of my realm of power and ability. And I think that's what's appealing about it, right? You watch those talent shows that are on TV. I love those. I love America's Got Talent. There's just people on there that can do insane, crazy things that I could never do if my life depended on. And there's, there's something about us as humans, right, that we're just attracted, we're attracted to power. We're attracted to people that have kind of those extra abilities that maybe the normal folks among us don't have, don't we? And we respond to it differently. Now, some of us see things like that, and we see like an amazing acrobatic kind of act, and we're like, oh my gosh, that was insane. Did you see that? Did you see what he did? Like, I, want, I need his autograph. I want to talk to him. I'm going to ask him to come to my kid's birthday party. Like, I want him to tell me all his secrets. I'm going to try that tomorrow if I'm not very smart, right? Like, we're just super excited about it. And then there's always the crowd that's like, yeah, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Like, I'm pretty sure I could do that if I wanted to, right? Like, not, not right now, not today, just because I don't feel like it, but if I wanted to, I could, right? You know what I mean? Like, we're, we're, we're more skeptical of that, of that kind of stuff. And we, we respond to those kind of displays of power a little bit differently. And I think that those kinds of attitudes and those kind of responses can cross over into our relationship with God, right? And cross over into our faith journey as well, because here's what I know, right? It doesn't matter if you're watching online, if you're at one of our campuses today, that the reasons that we came to church this week are all very different, all right? And I'm willing to bet that there's probably some of us in the range of my voice right now that were coerced into coming here, all right? That this isn't normal for you. This, maybe this is brand new for you. Maybe you're here because your wife promised to cook you your favorite dinner later on. I don't know. Maybe she promised you something even better, but that's none of my business. I, I, I don't know, right? Like, maybe you're a middle school or high school student, and you just wanted to stay home and eat bagel pizzas, but your dad told you to get your butt in the car, so here you are. Maybe you're in town visiting your in-laws, and this is how they roll. Listen, the reasons we come to church are darkly veiled and deeply mysterious, all right? But, but here's, here's what I do know is that when we gather together like this, it doesn't matter how we got here. It doesn't matter what brought us here today and what brought us together, but what matters is how we will respond to the power of God that will be put on display, that already has been on display here tonight because when we meet the power of God, when we encounter the power of God, it requires a response from us. Now we get to choose how we respond. Our responses look differently across the board. No one gets to force you into a certain kind of response, but you will respond to the spirit of God at work in your life for better or for worse. There's something about it. It elicits a response from us. It's required when we encounter the power of God, just like anything just like anything else. And for some of us, yeah, like, this is like those of us who would get really excited when we see a circus act. Like, we see God on display, and man, we are more than willing to get on our faces and worship. And a God that, to, to, to imagine a God that is so all-powerful, yet so perfectly loving and merciful and forgiving to us at the exact same time, man, we'll give our life to that any day. It just makes sense. But then on the other hand, there are those of us, and I'm not, I'm not banging on anybody here right now, but there are those of us that might just say, you know what, I'm not so sure about that. I'm not so sure if that's for me. That could be great for the next person, and I'm happy for them, but I've got to think about this. I've got to check this out from a distance for a while. I've got to examine this. I'm not quite sure where I fall. We may be a little bit more 
skeptical. But here's the thing. Today, before we leave, we'll all respond to God in some manner, in some fashion, and how he wants to work in our lives. And this has been going on since the very beginning, the, the book of Acts. Ever since, ever since the church was established, we've been working through this for the past, it's been several weeks now. Pastor Dell was saying we're coming down to the end of our Acts series. And I'm going to fly through three different chapters at the end of Acts just so we can, we can get this done today, all right? And uh, next week will be our last week. We're looking at chapters 24, 25, and 26, if you've got your Bibles. But we're going to look at three different men who encountered the power of God and had to decide how they were going to respond, okay? And just a little bit of backstory before I jump into chapter 24 there. Paul is still on trial. Now, if you were here with us last week or tuned in online, you heard Pastor Seth talk about Paul being on trial and in that rejection seat, well, that's still continuing, right? Paul is still on trial. There's been no resolution there quite yet, but he has changed cities. Last week he was in Jerusalem, but then what happened was there was basically this group of like 40 ninjas who decided they were going to kill Paul in the nighttime when he's being moved from one prison to another, and the authorities found out about it, so they had to like sneak Paul out of Jerusalem and transfer him up to Caesarea in the north and get him out of there before he was killed, all right? So can you can you imagine that being your everyday life? Like, most days, my biggest problem is what I'm going to have for supper, right? And Paul just constantly had people trying to cut his head off and throwing rocks at him and just people that hated him and wanted him dead. And just like, he just seems to take it all, take it all in stride. But he finds himself in a different city, now put on trial again with a new judge. And this is the first guy that we meet in our story here today. His name is Felix, and he's the governor of the region. Now, all the adults in the room, let's just recognize that we're thinking about Felix the cat right now, okay? Kids, you guys can Google that and find out about what that later, okay, because that's kind of an older thing, but Governor Felix was his name, really cool name, and in Acts chapter 24, verse 1, here's what happens when Paul's put on trial yet again after being transferred to a different city and a different judicial system. It says, five days later, Ananias, the high priest, arrived, now that's going to be important, arrived with some of the Jewish elders and a lawyer, Tertullus, to present their case against Paul, the governor. So these were the guys like, that like, got the ninjas together that were going to kill Paul, okay? And so they transferred him up to a different city. And so I like how it says that they arrived with their like, little crew, like they didn't get him. And so now a few days later, they're kind of showing up late and being like, okay, we're getting our act together. We brought a lawyer. We're going to take this guy down. And then when Paul was called in, Tertullus presented the charges against Paul and the following address to the governor. I don't have, I'm not going to read you Tertullus's full address here for just the sake of time. He was a lawyer. We know what that's like, right? Yada, yada, yada. Does, does his whole thing. And then Paul does what he does so well. And it's his opportunity to respond. And it's his opportunity to, to build his own defense. And he doesn't just take this as an opportunity to say, I'm not guilty. I didn't do anything wrong. I shouldn't be here. But Paul understands that this is a platform, right? Paul was always on mission. Paul was always looking to make an impact for the kingdom and an impact for Jesus. And so he understands that he's got an incredible opportunity here in this very public trial with this very powerful man, Governor Felix, who's presiding over this. Now, really, as far as like criminals go in the judicial system, Paul is really moving up the ranks here. All right. And so he just he just basically lays out his whole testimony and his whole his whole life before Felix here. And what Felix does is interesting because he responds by saying, 
yeah, you know what? We're gonna have to, we're gonna have to postpone this. Like we need, we need a, we need a recess of courts. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like he says, I, I can't make a decision here just quite yet. We're gonna have to take a couple days off. And basically, if you read through the story, Felix keeps postponing and postponing and putting this thing off until eventually someone else comes in and takes over and has to deal with it. He makes Paul somebody else's somebody else's problem. But something stirred in Felix's heart that day when Paul gave his defense, when Paul told his story, the good news of what God had done in his life and the transforming, saving power of the living Christ. Because it says in verse 24 of chapter 24 that a few days later, Felix came back, came back to Paul with his wife, Drusilla, another sweet name, who was Jewish. Okay, so Paul was Jewish and Felix's wife was Jewish. So there's a connection here. And sending for Paul, they listened as he told them about faith in Christ Jesus. And he reasoned with them about righteousness and self-control and the coming day of judgment. But Felix became frightened. Go away for now, he replied. And when it's more convenient, I'll call for you again. Felix reacts out of fear. He's curious. God's working in his heart. He wants to understand more. He wants to learn more. And the more he learns, the more he encounters this power of God in his life, the more he sort of stands back and says, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't, know, if this is, I don't know if this is for me. Maybe it's, maybe it's for my wife. Maybe it's for Drusilla, and that could work for her. Or you know, maybe it's for somebody else. But, but he's scared. He's too scared to touch it. And how, many, how often do we come to church or gather together or experience the power of God in our life, but then go, you know, maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's for somebody else. Or we come to church and we feel like maybe God is calling us something or we feel the spirit of God moving and he's laying something on our hearts. But then out of a spirit of fear, we just respond and like, well, you know, I could, I could do that. I could respond or, or maybe I could just wait for somebody else to do it. Right, like I, I, could, I could get more involved. I could serve more. I could, I could take more ownership of my faith. I could, I could be more intentional about how I live my life, but well, maybe, maybe I don't need to. Maybe somebody else will, you know? I, I, I could sponsor one of those compassion kids that we were talking about last week, but, you know, some, somebody else will, will probably do that. The offering bucket goes by every week. I, I, that, that's not for me. I don't need to do that. Some, somebody else will do that. Or, or we do the one where we come to church and we hear something, right? And instead of applying it to our own lives, and really seeing what it is that God wants to speak to us, we start thinking about all the other people that are in the room that we might know. It's like, yeah, give it to her, preacher. Like Sally up there in row B, C16, like we all know she could use a little more Jesus in her life, right? So preach on, man, preach on. And they're like, we're, we're, we're brushing it off onto somebody else, right? And that's exactly what Felix did. He encountered this power of the God, and God wanted him to have a moment and to have an experience. And Paul did his very best, but Felix just said, no, maybe, maybe for someone else, maybe for someone else. And for two years, he keeps putting off Paul's trial and doesn't, doesn't do what he needed to do and make a decision. In verse 26, it says he also hoped that Paul would bribe him, so he sent for him quite often and talked to him. And after two years went by in this way, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. If there's a cooler name than Felix, I guess it's Festus, all right? And so Felix never ends up making any kind of a decision, no verdict on Paul's trial at all, and he offloads it on to someone else, okay? And Festus takes over, and now Festus is now responsible for Paul. When Festus takes over, he decides that he's just going to get right to work, and he's going to do this, and he's going to make it happen. He did, Paul's been strung along for long enough. It's time to take care of Time to take care of business. And so Festus kind of goes through the same trial process with Paul. It all starts over. you got to feel bad for Paul and all this, right? And if you skip ahead to chapter 25, verse 6, it says about eight or ten days later, 
Festus returned to Caesarea, and on the following day, he took his seat in court, and he ordered that Paul be brought in. And when Paul arrived, the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem gathered around, and they made many serious accusations that they couldn't prove. Paul denied the charges. He said, I'm not guilty of any crime against the Jewish laws or the temple or the Roman governments. And then Festus, and this is important right here, wanting to please the Jews, asked him, are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there? So, I mean, Paul is forced to tell his story again and tell the, tell the good news of what it is that God has done in his life again. But I don't think Paul hesitated for a second because, again, he was on mission, right? Here's another important man, another powerful man that God has given me opportunity to speak to and to speak life to. And I'm going to do my very best to make that happen here in this courtroom today. But we see there in verse 9 that Festus had this tendency to want to please the Jews. Man, that he, he wanted to keep people happy, right? That kind of an attitude and that kind of a, a, a disposition is probably what got him appointed to be an important official like a governor in the first place. He knew how to play the game, all right? This guy had some skills. He had some chops. But I love Paul's response to him where Festus basically says, will you go back to Jerusalem, back to where these Jewish people want you in the first place, back to where it's easier for them to kill you? Paul's response is really clear here in verse 10 of chapter 25. Paul replies, no. This is the official Roman court, so I ought to be tried right here. For you know very well that I'm not guilty of harming the Jews. If I've done something worthy of death, I don't refuse to die. He's like, listen, if I did something wrong, then you can kill me, but I didn't. I'm innocent. No one has the right to turn me over to these men to kill me. I appeal to Caesar. It's going to be important here in a second. And then Festus conferred with his advisors and then replied, very well, you have appealed to Caesar and to Caesar, you will go, all right? Now, in 2017, appealing to Caesar, what's that have to do with us, right? Kind of makes me hungry. Caesar salad, that's good stuff, right? But he's saying when I, I appeal to Caesar, that was like one of the, the highest rights that a Roman citizen held. And again, we're going back in the archives here, but a couple weeks ago, Pastor Brent talked about as a Roman citizen, Paul had certain rights that no one could deny him. And one of those rights was the ability to appeal to Caesar. And what that essentially means for us, if you do a little bit of research into this, is that it was like appealing to the Supreme Court, the highest court in the land where you got to go to Rome and sit in the official Roman courts before the highest authorities and the highest lawmakers and they would issue your decision and that would be the final decision. But here's why it was so important is because whoever presided over those Roman courts, when someone appealed to Caesar and those official Roman courts, whoever was presiding over that, whoever the judge or the magistrate was over that particular trial, their life was literally on the line. The officials' lives were on the line because the Romans took this very, very seriously. And if it was found out that a judge didn't do their due diligence or they didn't give someone a fair chance or they didn't hear all the evidence or even if they just made a bad decision, that they could themselves be put to death. Can you, can you imagine, right, if our judges today, like their life was in the balance of the decisions that they made? Like it might affect some stuff, all right? And so you knew as a Roman citizen that if you appealed to Caesar, if you invoked that right that you had as a Roman citizen, then you were going to get the fairest trial possible because these judges and these magistrates literally were dealing with their own lives. But I don't think Paul was necessarily incredibly interested in getting a fair shake. 
I don't think Paul was really interested in vindication. I don't think he was really interested in being able to be set free and then look back in the face of those Jewish leaders that have been trying to kill him now for years and years and years and saying, can't touch us, you know what I mean? Kids, again, Google it, educate yourself, all right? Like Paul wasn't interested in that. He wasn't interested in revenge. I think the reason Paul wanted to go to Rome is because he understood that Roman courts were the most prestigious, right? They were the most publicized. He understood that now this trial was going up a notch, which meant more people were going to hear his story. It meant a bigger platform. We're talking like a new modern day O.J. Simpson kind of trial, right? Like this one would go down in history. CNN, CBC, Fox News coverage, like everybody would be there. Everybody would hear about this. That's why Paul appealed to Caesar. That's why he wanted to go to Rome, because it was another opportunity to push the gospel as far as he possibly could have. Go back to chapter 23, where Pastor Seth was last week, God actually promises Paul that he's going to get to preach and to spread the gospel in Rome, but he doesn't tell him how. And so I'm sure if I'm Paul, I would have much rather sailed there on a a luxury cruise ship, you know, or the latest model of camel at the very least. But listen, if it takes a transfer in the prison system to get to Rome, Paul was all about it. He just didn't care. He was going to do whatever it took to do what it was that God had called him to. So he appeals to Caesar to get sent to Rome, and Festus is, you know, his hands are tied. He's going to do what he's going to do. So he says, sure enough. And then enter the next man in our story. King Agrippa comes, comes into the story here now. And so King Agrippa basically just, again, to save time, he would have been a higher rank in the, in the rank and file of the Roman government than, than the governor Festus would have been, but underneath the emperor Caesar, okay? So basically just another really important person comes into our story here. And I don't know if he just showed up in Caesarea on a royal tour or whatever it was just to do, you know, the kingly thing and wave and say hi to all of his, his loyal subjects, but it, at the very least, when he comes to town, this is a party, okay? You better believe they would have rolled out the red carpet treatment. Like if Justin Trudeau showed up in St. John, we're going to roll out a red carpet treatment, right? Like they, that's just the way it goes. And so King Agrippa comes on to the scene and Festus is doing his, his thing as a governor and he's, he's whining and he's dining him. And then just, I think, over some casual evening conversation one night, Festus brings up this trial with this man, Paul, this been ongoing now and he just starts talking to King Agrippa about it and I think he's telling him you know some of the just nuances of this and there's this man and he speaks with power and authority but yet there's this group of Jewish people that want him dead but it doesn't really seem like he did anything wrong we're just really trying to figure out what to do with it and King Agrippa is very intrigued so he says let's 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 call court a session again and I, I want to take a crack at him I want to hear this personally myself and so obviously Festus agrees and now, I've got to believe that, that Paul, when he heard that, it would have been music to his ears to know that he was going to get a chance to speak to yet another more powerful person, right? Like another opportunity to spread the gospel because he tried, he tried with Felix and done his best and he sort of brushed him off onto someone else and he, he tried with Festus and Festus was just too wrapped up in what other people thought, right? Too concerned with these Jewish people to really make any kind of a solid decision and a response on his own. And, and you know, how often for us are we kind of like Festus that way that, man, we're, we're really concerned with what the people around us think, even in church, even when it comes to faith. Like, I, I, I don't want to raise, I do, but I, I don't think I'm going to raise my hand in response to what the pastor's saying. He's asking me to raise my hand, and I feel like, but I'm not going to because I'm afraid of what the person next to me is going to think, right? Or, I mean, I feel like God's calling me to something awesome, but how am I going to explain this 
to my parents? How am I going to explain this to my wife? What are my employees going to think if I find Jesus overnight? You know, like that's, I'm just not sure I'm willing to have those kinds of awkward conversations and the fear of what people think of us can paralyze us and literally rob us from experiencing the favor of the hand of God that he so desperately wants to rest on our life that caused Festus to miss it. And then King Agrippa comes on to the scene and then in verse in chapter 26, starting there in verse 1, Paul's excited to have another opportunity to speak to another powerful man. And King Agrippa said to Paul, you may speak in your defense. And so Paul, gesturing with his hand, started his defense. I am fortunate, King Agrippa, that you're the one hearing my defense today against all these accusations made by the Jewish leaders. For I know that you are an expert on all Jewish customs and controversies. Now please listen to me patiently. As the Jewish leaders are well aware, I was given a thorough Jewish training from my earliest childhood among my own people in Jerusalem. And if they would admit it, they know that I have been a member of the Pharisees, the strictest sect of our religion. Now, the Pharisees, most of them were this gang of people that were trying to get Paul killed. And Paul's like, I used to be one of them, right? And now they're trying to kill me. Like, that's not cool at all. Those guys used to be my friends. And he says, now I'm on trial because of my hope and the fulfillment of God's promise made to our ancestors. And in fact, that's why the 12 tribes of Israel zealously worship God night and day, and they share the same hope that I have. He's trying to find common ground. He's like, they're Jewish. I love Jesus. We should all be celebrating. I'm worshiping their Messiah. Like, we should be in this together. Yet, your majesty, they accuse me for having this hope. Why does it seem incredible to any of you that God can raise the dead? And again, Paul's left here to make his own defense. He's, he tries to, tries to reach across the aisle, says, listen, I'm Jewish. I was raised the same way that you are. I know the same laws. I was even a Pharisee, like the highest rank that you could get in the Jewish community. We should be in this together. And I want you just to think for a second about the pomp and the circumstance that would have been happening in that courtroom this day where King Agrippa himself is presiding over this trial now in Caesarea. That would have been a rare thing. And so that you can imagine that every powerful, important politician in that region would have been in that courtroom today. And then all sorts of public people that just came to be where the powerful people were and came to hear this, this trial that, 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 that so many people are talking about probably in the streets and on the street corners and at the gates. Like, they want to see what's going to happen. They want to see what takes place. They want to see if King Agrippa is actually going to drop the hammer here for this trial that's literally been going on now for over two years in Caesarea. And Paul does what he does best, and he holds nothing back here. And he outlines his full life story, and he talks about how he used to be the worst of the worst, and that he used to literally kill and persecute Christians, but then one day he encountered the power of God in his own life, and it was so intense that he was knocked off his horse, and he was blind for a few days, but it changed everything, and ever since then, Paul's given his entire life to building the church instead of tearing it down. And Paul just talks and talks about how awesome and how powerful God is and how worthy he is of his devotion and of his, his servitude. And I, I love what happens here. Festus has just kind of been taking a backseat to Agrippa and he pipes up. He can't hold it in anymore. In verse 24 of 26, it says, Suddenly Festus shouted, Paul, you're insane. Too much study has made you crazy. You're loco, S.A. Like, he just like blurts this out. Like, Paul, you're nuts. Just sit down and shut up, basically, right? And I love, I love Paul's response here. So gracious, right? But I think dripping with some sarcasm, too. Picture it that way. In verse 25, but Paul replied, 
I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, but what I am saying is the sober truth. He's like, not only am I not crazy, I haven't even had anything to drink today, all right? And King Agrippa knows about these things. I speak boldly, for I am sure these events are all familiar to him, for they were not done in a corner. King Agrippa had some Jewish heritage as well. And then he calls him out in verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. And Paul turns the attention from this random outburst from Festus back onto the, the most powerful man in the room. And he requires a response from him. And he's been witness to the saving power of Jesus Christ, the living Christ that has changed and transformed Paul and is now the, the cornerstone of his life. And he requires a response from him, knowing that his response is going to have such an effect on everybody that's in the room, everybody that's listening, everybody that can hear this man. If Paul can convince this man, this could be a game changer. And he turns his attention back to him and And Agrippa's response is very telling in in verse 28, that Agrippa interrupted him and said, do you think that you can persuade me to become a Christian so quickly? And it's a very political response, right? He essentially circles around the question without having to answer it. We've seen that done before, haven't we? But the long and the short of it is that Agrippa basically holds this whole story in an arm's length. I need more proof. I need I need more time. And a man like that, like Agrippa, he'd been in the game for a while, right? And I think he probably felt like these sorts of spiritual matters were below him, that he didn't have the time of day to give to this. He didn't have a lot of need in his life to make a lot of big changes. He didn't sense why it was necessary for him. And you know what? I've heard that same kind of reasoning for people that come to church and encounter the power of God as well. And we say the same kind of things where, you know, you know, maybe this is for somebody else, but I'm just going to hold it at an arm's length because I'm not sure it's for me. I'm not sure I need that. Maybe some of us are just really content with the way our life is going right now. Maybe life, everything's just coming up awesome for you right now, okay? And you don't have a whole lot of need in your life. But I think Paul understood something, and I think that we all need to understand something tonight, is that the cost of not following Jesus is always going to be greater than the cost of following him. And for King Agrippa, his heart, he'd, he'd, he'd hardened it. The Bible talks about hardened hearts sometimes. It is basically where he was in a place where he just no longer felt a need to respond to the power of God in this way. And you know what? Some of us that are probably listening to this today, there may be some of us that have done the exact same thing. We just feel like we've been in the game for long enough and we've seen enough and we've been around for long enough that there's no real felt need for us to surrender to an all-powerful God. There's no real felt need in our life to make any sorts of changes. Things are going pretty well now. Why rock the boat? And Jesus talks about hardened hearts, actually, in the gospel of Matthew for people who don't even want to entertain that notion that Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 15. He says, for the hearts of these people are hardened and their ears cannot hear and they've closed their eyes so that their eyes cannot see and their ears cannot hear and their hearts cannot understand and they cannot turn to me. They cannot respond to me and let me heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. And you know, some of us may feel like that maybe we've just kind of turned that off, that we've been down that road and we're, we're done with that. 
and we're not exploring that anymore. But I think that Jesus and Paul understood that when we soften our hearts and just give God an opportunity to put himself on display in our life, that everything can change and nothing will ever be the same again. And we may find that there's a stronger need for a God who is all-powerful yet all-loving and forgiving than we may have ever thought possible in our own life. And here's the thing. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. I've heard from so many people so many times I just say, man, I've, I've gone too far. I've done too much. There's just, there's just no point. Like God, like if God's going to work in somebody's life, he's going to work for in someone's life who doesn't have an addiction like mine. God doesn't need this. He doesn't need this baggage. Like he doesn't need them. Like he doesn't need the mess of my life. Listen, there's no one outside of the realm of the grace of God. There's no one outside of the realm of who God is asking to respond to him every single day right now. For some of us, this is our moment, that if you're listening to this, that God is calling you to respond to him in a way that maybe you never have before. Maybe it's just a refresher course for you, and it's been a long time. Maybe you feel like your heart has hardened a little bit, and God wants you to soften that. But I don't care who you are or how you got here today. I don't care if you were bribed into being a part of church right now, that God wants to do something in your life, that there's a response that he's calling from you. And what's interesting about a response to God and when we're called to respond is that it's always an exercise of trust because response requires some movement, doesn't it? It may require some effort on our part. I don't know, maybe you relate to one of those three guys, Felix, Festus, or Agrippa. And maybe for you, you're really worried about what people around you think and you're really worried about how responding to God or making any sort of shift or change or alteration or surrendering to God, how that would affect the rest of your life. Maybe you need to trust God with that. Maybe you're like, maybe you're like Agrippa and maybe you just feel like, man, I've, I've been doing this for so long. I don't know if I'm ready to make any sort of a change. Or maybe you're like Felix and you just feel like, man, that's all well and that's all good, but it's for somebody else. And God is saying tonight, no, this is, this is for you. I am, I am for you. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, I am for you. And so how will we respond this week, church? How do we respond when the spirit of God moves in us and he calls us to something greater? Because here's what I do know is that there's not a single one of us who has the power to make this life work the way that it was truly designed to, that we were designed to do this in tandem with our creator who loves us, like under the umbrella and the authority and the covering and the protection of an all-powerful God who's yet so loving and kind and gracious that we never have to try and earn anything from him. There's nothing you could ever do to earn forgiveness and grace, but guess what? You could have it for free. There's nothing you could ever do to to break your secret habit, but God will do it for you for free. There's no amount of self-help books or discipline you can get to really change your life and to make it better, but God wants to bring you under his coverage and his protection, but he just says, all you got to do is respond. It's always been our choice to respond. It's a very personal thing. I can't do it for you. Your parents can't do it for you. Your spouse can't do that for you. That is something that's between you and God 
alone, but it requires some action. It requires a response. Paul had plenty of opportunities to change his response to God. You know, try and put yourself in his shoes and think about everything that he went through. I don't know you, but I definitely would have been tempted to take back my yes from God a few times, right? Where Paul committed his life to him, and then when things got incredibly difficult, incredibly hard, Paul could have turned his back. He could have walked away, but Paul understood that his power came from a whole other place. We understand earthly power. We understand what that looks like. We understand why that's impressive. But in the face of these three very powerful men, Paul understood that his power came from somewhere else. He understood that he received his power from a God who was there, that was had always been there and always wanted to be there for him. He fought earthly power with heavenly power, and we know that was never a fair fight to begin with, right? And Paul never stood back and waited for somebody else to step in. He said, God, do what you're going to do with my life. Paul never had the luxury of worrying about what the people around him thought. God, do what you're going to do with my life. You have my yes no matter what. And I wonder what the yes is that we need to say to God tonight because we're left with the opportunity to respond. Before we leave here today, my friends, we will respond. You will respond. You respond to God in one way or another, but you get to make that decision. And I'm going to pray for us in just a moment, and the band will come back out and play. And, and during that song, I want you to just reflect on what it is that, that God is asking you to respond to today. And I'm not going to make it weird. I'm not going to do I'm not going to call anybody out, but I just want to pray for you. And as the band plays, I want you to reflect on what that response is and how he's asking you to move and what step he's asking you to take in an area that he's asking you to trust him that maybe you've been afraid or maybe you've been hesitant or maybe you've been waiting for somebody else or you just have been feeling for so long that this isn't for you and it's too late for you. Responding to Jesus in complete surrender is the only way to find freedom in our life, church. It's the only way. And it seems backward to us that surrender could equal freedom. But with Jesus, is how it works. He's waiting for you. Our response to, this, to a display of God's power will literally shape our destiny, church. Will you pray with me? God, we love you so much, Father. And we're just in awe of who you are and what you're doing in our lives, God. And I know that there is a response that you were calling out from us today, Father. And there's, you're working in hearts and lives even now, Father, and we just want to be sensitive to that. God, would you give us the ability, Father, to not think about anybody else around us right now, to just focus in on what it is that you're doing in our hearts and our lives, God, that you have business that you want to do with us tonight. There was a response that you were calling us to today, Father. So God, would we have the courage and the boldness to say yes to whatever that is that you've placed in front of us, God, whatever that is that you want from us, God, whatever that is that you want for us, God, would you give us the boldness to say yes, God, I pray for the person, Father, who's been sitting on the sidelines and just been waiting for somebody else to pick up the ball and run with it, God, would you give them the courage and the boldness to say yes, Father, I pray for the person who's just been holding you at an arm's length, God, because they're afraid of what the people around them may think, Father, I pray that you would give them the boldness to say yes, God, I pray for hearts that may may have been hardened, God, for hearts that have been hard for a long, long time. God, would you soften them today, Father? Would you break through, Father? Would you give us the courage to crack that door so you could begin to shine your light in where it hasn't been in a long, long time, Father? We love you. 
God, we believe that what you can and you want to do in and through our lives is beautiful. God, we believe that in our brokenness, you still care, you still love us, Father. That is not even remotely an issue with you and what you want to do in our lives. So we surrender that to you today, Father. Give us the boldness to do that even as we sing now, Father. We love you and it's in the incredible name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.